What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. Today, the clinical athletic trainer coordinators uh, from literally around the globe are here to discuss what athletic training education normally looks like and then what it looks like now during the COVID-19 and transitioning to online. So I have Luzita Velta from the University of Virginia. I have Effa Burke from Dublin City University. I have Valerie Pellick from the University of Winnipeg and Adam Naylor from the University of Bolton. So just real quick, um, Valerie, once you start us off, say hello. And if there's anything else you'd like to kind of throw out there, it's an interesting fact. Maybe you run marathons every, every weekend or something. Hi there. Um, thanks for having me today. I'm really excited to do this. I don't run marathons. Um, I don't know. I, I'm a graduate of the University of Winnipeg. So I went through my, my whole program as a student and now I'm an instructor, which is an interesting perspective, but never had to deal with anything like this. Thank goodness, because it was a long time ago before technology. Hi, <laughs> right, Lucita. Hi, uh, this is Lucita. Nothing really interesting right now going on other than trying to figure out how to homeschool my six-year-old son, which has been a challenge. I recognize that I've definitely uh, gotten used to college-age students, and six-year-olds are very different. Uh, but other than that, it's nice to talk to a fellow Texan. <laughs> Adam? Hi, yes. Um... Probably a similar challenge, not, not so much the homeschooling, but I've got a two and a four-year-old, uh, so trying to balance the, um, the support of our students um, while looking after two young menaces who were running around the place. And in the meantime, look, just responding on your point of, of marathon running, I'm, I'm trying to train for Ironman at the moment. So, And at the moment, our event in the UK has not been postponed, so balancing all of that is, yeah, a bit of a challenge. But it's now great to be here, and uh, and thanks for having us on. Absolutely, Effa. Uh, yeah, I suppose um, I haven't run any marathons, but I'm doing a PhD on marathon runners and injuries, so uh, I can take pointers from everybody here, I suppose. Um, and other than that, yeah, just getting used to online lecturing and just life indoors, really, or at least life within two kilometres. So thanks for having me on and thinking of us in Ireland. Of course. So I am the host, Jeremy Jackson, and I want to thank Jacob Resch and the World Federation of Athletic Training and Therapy for putting all this together. Uh, it's a really cool opportunity just to get everybody and talk about what it looks like in this crisis. So this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash international clinical coordinator. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash international clinical coordinator, where I'll have links to any of the resources that they give and ways to contact each of the guests today. So, um, Effa, why don't we start with you and what does the baseline look like for you? What does athletic training, clinical coordination, education look like for you normally? And then we'll go from there. So I suppose the, the normal day-to-day -day running would be we have student-led clinics. So these are clinics that the students run and then they are supervised by professional athletic trainers. Um, and I suppose people with genuine injuries come in and have their injuries assessed um, by the second, third and fourth year students and I suppose typically they run every day and the students uh, get involved in those but they've been halted and as well as that we run rehabilitation clinics which would be specific rehabilitation time slots for injured athletes, injured staff members to come in and do some um, targeted rehab that they wouldn't otherwise have access to a gym facility 
Um, and then, of course, their team placements as well. So the students going out with different teams, um, being pitch sides and uh, just helping out in general in around the, the team performance aspects. So all of that, unfortunately, has come to a close um, for the past four weeks. So what we have done is we've tried to, to implement some assignments to encourage their clinical reasoning skills um, and encourage them to still look around uh, the areas of traveling with teams and preparing for traveling and emergency action plans that they might otherwise not put too much thought into. But now we're really trying to, to drill into that so that they can see the importance of it. But yeah, it's difficult and challenging right now. Gotcha. All right, Adam, let's uh, slide right on over to you. What does your baseline look like? And then, yeah, um, just, I suppose, on an awareness issue, you guys um, have a, a common terminology around athletic training. Our version is sport rehabilitation, um, which hopefully you are sort of familiar with as well. Um, but to be honest, it sounds very similar to Aoife's case. Um, we do a, a lot of theory and practical teaching embedding that into clinical practice um, we've got a clinician-led um, clinic within the university that the students will uh, rotate in and out of um, it links with our conditioning suites rehab suites and our sports science laboratories so we offer quite a, a holistic service to the public and the staff and students as well and that's really integrated into our <coughs> um, undergraduate and postgraduate sport rehabilitation programs. Um, so yeah, it does, does sound quite similar. There are team environments that um, we're flooded with in the Northwest of England uh, from rugby union, rugby league and professional football. There are a lot of teams within our locality. And again, our students will get, um, normally get a really um, in-depth experience. Um, a lot of hands-on work, um, a lot of understanding of how the teams run. So this balance between clinical practice and sports team environment is really at the forefront of what we normally do. And of course, we're, on, we're now on shutdown. So um, mm -hmm. teams have stopped, leagues have stopped, everything's kind of come to that halt. And uh, yeah, we're at that uh, reorganization stage of, of how we get through this. So very similar. All right, Valerie. Um, I, yeah, I'd say we're, we're similar in a lot of ways. Our athletic therapy students, um, they, they take different practicum courses throughout the year. Uh, we're fortunate because the larger group of them in the three different courses were actually finishing in anyways. So they really didn't miss out on any practical experiences. Um, their hours were pretty much complete. Um, their assignments were pretty much done when this all happened. Um, we just have our one group of practicum three students who are on the verge of graduating. We're just waiting for them um, to be able to write a practical exam um, in order to then graduate and qualify for our national exam. So they're the only group that's a little bit held up, but um, we do have students who started in January with their, uh, their practicum courses. So some of, they were all at different stages. A lot of them were waiting for our spring and summer start sports spring and summer sports to get going. So that'll be just on hold for a while. And whenever things resume, we'll just have to see what we can find and, and they're the priority to get them done. And then we'll see what we can do, hopefully for the fall term and get those students moving through. And, and hopefully things resume as normal with our normal um, clinics that they would attend both um, the university clinic and then also external clinics in the community and then sports both on campus and um, in external placements as well. 
All right. And then so typical Texas Southern <clears throat> hospitality. Zita, I, I, you'll, you'll go last there, allowing everybody else to go first. So. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, I think very similar to what everybody else has mentioned, you know, at UVA, uh, the University of Virginia, our professional athletic training program is a two-year master's program. So it's highly condensed and it's year round. And so like everybody's mentioned, they would have the didactic component with classes. They would have the clinical components, which are on grounds or on campus, but also off grounds with, you know, local high schools, clinics, um, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the didactics have been able to pivot pretty effectively onto an online format. Uh, much like everybody else has mentioned, it's really the clinical placements that's really have to change. And I think one of the things that we were also having to think through a lot is that much, many of our preceptors or clinicians are having to think through like, what does care look like for them now first in figuring out how to provide patient care now via telemedicine, for example, before our students can even get engaged with that. Um, and so there's just a lot of formulations behind the scenes, just trying to figure out what's happening. And so our students do, you know, are really kind of feeling like a loss of not having those clinical placements right now, not having the opportunity to connect with um, fellow patients or athletes. Um, but we're trying our best to kind of trying to find a way to give them a sense of normalcy. And like Valerie mentioned, I think that the other big thing is our practical assessments, which we're going to occur at the end of the semester. We're just having to delay to future semesters when we can actually get them face to face. There are some things we can still assess practically, but I think there's still a component of the immediacy of physical face-to-face -face that I think our students really value that we want to make sure they still get. All right, so let's continue right right there with that. What does that look like now? Are, are y'all actually just video calling, telemedicine with each of the athletes, or what, is it, what does it look like right now for you? Luzita, you can go ahead and continue. Well, yeah, so um, I don't actually have a clinical practice um, as a clinical education coordinator. Um, that's just the way we set this up at University of Virginia. My primary job is teaching and clinical coordination. So I can't speak from a personal level what my practice would look like. I can tell you what our clinicians are working through and it depends on the setting and the resources that they have. So say for University of Virginia Sports Medicine, they're having to figure out which is their online platform that they prefer for telemedicine. And there are some free ones that they um, had access to like doxy.me, et cetera. Um, Zoom has a HIPAA compliance section. A lot of the laws in the United States have been loosened about HIPAA compliance in part to allow people and providers to provide telemedicine support. Um, but really they're trying to figure out, and a lot of it is about setting policy and procedures and standards and documentation. We're lucky in athletic training world, at least partially in a lot of settings, where we really don't have to bill for services. And that's usually the holdup in a lot of settings is about the billing piece. And we really don't have that. So a lot of our uh, preceptors and athletic trainers are just still continuing contact with the team. The sports psychologists are still doing the same, strength conditioning coaches, et cetera, through these individual conversation or team meetings via, via Zoom, those kinds of things. Um, but I think right now they're also just trying to give them some space to kind of process um, and not overly, we want to give them some normalcy of getting them back to their routine, but also just being able to, to, to understand they're in a new, whole new world, basically. All right. So Valerie, what does that look like for you now? Uh, well, because most of our students had just been on the verge of finishing their placements, they're, they're just sort of done right now because we're an undergraduate degree. 
Um, the students who were in the middle of placements, it's just on hold for now. Um, I think uh, like our university clinic is shut down with the entire university. Um, so that's not an option. Our external service providers um, in different clinics, they, they do have the option of the telehealth. Um, I don't know how busy they are. I, don't, uh, I, I know that a lot of them are quite stressed about what will happen with their businesses. Um, so I think adding in a student to the mix would not work at all. Um, and, and because it's so different, it would be valuable, I think, for a student to just have sort of a, a, a small taste of what they're doing to continue their, their business. I think maybe after this is done or if it continues longer and we get more comfortable with, you know, this is how things are running for now, maybe we could incorporate some student education on this sort of option. Um, but yeah, for now, everything is just on hold for our students. Um, and I think the longer this goes on, we'll have to maybe reevaluate just some alternative options um, for the students who are currently registered in the course beyond just extending their term. But we, we can't sacrifice the hands-on experience at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's one of the interesting parts, you know, because athletic training is such a hands-on, you know, I'm also a teacher in the high school, so I could, I could learn to teach biology without ever having to do a hands-on skill, but there's no way I could learn to do athletic training without the hands-on skills. So, Adam, what has been the best part of transitioning to an online education for you? The best part? Um, well, we're about to re-engage with um, online classes from the 20th of April. Um, so for the past two weeks where we've been on to complete university lockdown, the students have actually been on an extended Easter break, um, which has allowed staff uh, that little bit of additional time to prepare resources and realign how we're delivering classes, um, how we're providing resources and how we're re reorganizing assessments. So um, other than personal so tutor support and individual um, individual meetings or small group meetings we've, we've actually not engaged with um, our previous format of um, of classes as yet but in in design I think the best parts is actually learning to be quite time efficient with what we're providing and really thinking about what are the priority areas of information that we need for the students that will support their practical learning when we can then get face to face with them again um, and in that sense it's really made us think about um, or, or at least make these students focus on um, their knowledge, their understanding and, and the utilisation of, um, of literature and, and some real strong reading around um, their current knowledge levels, um, especially with that little bit of extra time that they've got um, when they're stuck indoors or they, they can't have the same mobility as they had before. Um, so we're really trying to guide them. A little bit more and if we were then to take the positives of this into our future structure when we are face-to-face -face teaching um, is taking the best parts of what we can provide online um, how we can be really directive with uh, what we want them to read um, even more so than what we would be doing before um, and almost have that a little bit more of a uh, progressive structure that supports the practical elements um, so there's, there's quite a lot we are taking from this, I think. 
staff meetings online, efficiency of time. There's, there's loads of beneficial effects of learning um, new technologies, which uh, some of our staff team have, have got on board with really, really quickly. Some have taken a little bit more time. And, um, and I think that will hopefully make things more efficient in the future. All right, Effa, same thing. What do you think are, has been the benefit of moving in that direction? Uh, I suppose the first benefit would be the the health and well-being of our students. I suppose Ireland as a country, um, our healthcare system wouldn't be as strong as some other nations. And I suppose we're really working towards flattening the curve. So we're into coming into our fifth week now of online learning. So we found out on a Thursday that campus is closed. Everything is to be provided for online. And by that Monday, then everything was online. So it was a massive um, crash course in our technological skill development. Like it was a real shock to the system in trying to figure out how do you, I suppose, cater for every student, every type of learner, um, whether it's visual, auditory, um, individual or team-based, uh, and trying to figure out how we can still meet our learning outcomes and I suppose provide for the students and ultimately I think it's been great for us um, we've really developed we've kind of I suppose figured out ways of improving learning and teaching as well and I suppose interaction making it more interactive or at least trying to, to use different tools given the generation that we're teaching they're very technologically advanced very dependent on screen time and I suppose we're kind of feeding into that now and I've found personally that the engagement has been great and they really appreciate you know the different types of online tools and resources that they can use so yeah it's been uh, I suppose a baptism of fire but I think it'll benefit us ultimately because the the students are enjoying it and so far they they seem to be managing everything okay. All right. So I know Valerie, you've already said that y'all are, y'all are putting off all the hands-on skills. Um, Luzita, what are y'all doing as a clinical educator for those hands-on skills? Well, um, so we've started doing some simulations via their clinical courses. Um, so because they were taken out of the clinicals early, we've been using um, a thing called the clinical reasoning theater where we have students create cases um, other uh, act as actors, others are the clinicians, and they do a telemedicine visit with each other. The authenticity, you know, is not super high because it's someone they know, but at least gets them a chance. Like I think, Effa said, uh, uh, is, you know, thinking about their clinical reasoning skills, um, coming up with a good differential diagnosis, and then the physical exam is really what's been interesting, right? We get to it, and really, we, we really try to emphasize with our students most of what you are gonna do in a physical exam really has to be guided by a really great history, a good diff, and then you do what you need to do to roll in and roll out. So when we get to that, you know, they're having to think through like, how can we use a telemedicine visit to do a manual muscle test? Is that even possible? What do special tests look like? How do we do range of motion assessment? Um, although it's not a perfect format, I think they can still come up with a good working diagnosis and a good next step for how they would treat that patient. And so we're just trying to, get them thinking, um, problem solving that way. Um, and then I know in certain classes, uh, you know, uh, some of our faculty are still doing assessments uh, that can be done virtually. So that might mean they're bringing in a, a friend <laughs> or whoever they're living in in that space is gonna be their patient or their model. And then they're demonstrating a goniometric assessment or a special test of some sort on that person and video recording it and uploading it someplace. Um, 
which is nice because it allows them to, to go back and watch themselves, which they don't get to do in real time sometimes when you're not video recording in an exam. And they can really reflect on that experience and then allows the preceptor some time to kind of think through, how can I give some really good directed feedback? So there's a lot of things to be done. It's just about trying to find out what works for you, not feeling overwhelmed as a, a professor or teacher, and just, you know, picking something and setting very realistic expectations for the students about what they can do in that period of time um, until we can get back to face-to-face. Okay. Um, any, anyone else on the either the first question, which was uh, what has been the best part or what are you doing to encourage those hands-on clinical skills during this? I think I would just say, um, kind of echo what Lucy just said about um, just some of the, uh, I guess, some of the other skills that can be demonstrated. I teach some other courses as well, and, and we just had this online uh, taping exam. Uh, which was kind of unique and interesting, but had to be done. Uh, so we used Zoom um, for everyone to log in so they could be monitored. And then they each individually recorded themselves taping and doing as, an assessment and then uploaded it to our learning management platform. It seemed to work fairly well. Um, I mean, it, it's different when you're teaching the skill for the first time. I think that would be more difficult. This was just the examination part. But um, yeah, it's definitely, there are benefits to this, just learning how to use so many more tools and really being able to cater to so many different situations. Um, like now we would be able to, you know, cater to students who are abroad or in different provinces a lot easier. Yeah, uh, one of the things that Adam said was you can do faculty meetings online. You know, and obviously all teachers are thinking, yes, please, please. <laughs> I don't have to go sit there and listen for hours this meeting that you got one teacher asking nonsense questions. But um, one of the things that Lucy said was, the it really you have to get the good history so at our school we've had some the texas chiropractic college they've had students come out to, to our campuses uh, once a week and help and so one of the things that i try to do is give them an opportunity to, to do that so when one of the students was evaluating me he went straight to well here we here's how we can fix it and then his his clinical coordinator was like did you even stop and find out what was wrong did you you know, because he was, he was thinking, oh, well, this guy already knows what's wrong. Let me just go in there and fix what he said is wrong instead of asking all those questions and getting a good history. And so this is, this is a really cool opportunity for us to really reinforce. You can almost figure out the injury without ever touching them. And so um, what are some of the ways that y'all are really enforcing that or really encouraging that, that depth of the history of the, and the questioning to, to grow? You know, I think uh, what we try to do, um, this is Lucita, um, you know, we, we try to reinforce this from day one, but the reality is um, there's the, taking a good history takes time. And a lot of times in clinical practice, our preceptors who can use a different kind of reasoning strategy because they have so much experience, get there so quickly, our students sometimes need to be able to crawl into someone's brain to understand like, how did you get there so quickly with so few questions? Um, so this has asked us to kind of pump the brakes to your point, Jeremy, and kind of say like, if you can start asking some questions out loud and then do a timeout, which is what we do a lot in the clinical reasoning theater and articulate your thought process and how that question or that answer has started to shift your ideas of what's going on, really then it's us being able to really process like, 
what you're thinking at the time and to really help get at any faults in reasoning processes. But it really does take time. And the nice thing about this is there's a lot more time, <laughs> uh, almost to the point where our students are going crazy. Uh, but we can take advantage of that time to really slow down and get back, like you said, to the basics. And so I think that's what we're just trying to embrace. Sometimes our, it drives our students nuts because um, they just want to get to the end point. Um, but until they know why that patient has what they have, they're really not going to have the best intervention strategies. And so I think this has been helpful. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have three kids, two of them are in school, they're in elementary school. And sometimes we feel like there is a lot of assignments, a lot of online assignments for these kids. Like they're, they're just kind of overwhelmed, right? Cause they're stressed. They're at home. They're not in their normal routine. Um, they're having to learn to, to check Google classroom every day. The teachers are having to learn to put the schedule in there. And you got four teachers communicating different via different, whether it's remind or text or email or phone call or class dojo or whatever app it is. So what, uh, if has been one of the chief, concerns expressed by your students? Uh, I saw one of the main concerns is their prospective placements and this is especially I suppose relevant for our third year students about to go into final year um, so they they would do an immersive placement placement in the first semester of their final year and this is typically in the states in Australia in the UK and Right now, I suppose, uh, and, and rightly so, they, they have some stress with that and it's kind of just the uncertainty of it. Um, so we're kind of trying to keep things uh, as normal, try to prepare them and continue the process as advised by the, the university and the government. But um, other than that, their only concerns are what might happen in the end of term exam. So it goes from a practical exam to a written exam or um, how their clinical hours are going to be met next semester. and. Um, we've kind of resolved this by we kind of have zero credit modules next year. So um, they'll build up their hours or there'll be a lot of times to, to build up their hours here. But their main concern has been typically with the, the placements next year, trying to figure out what they're going to do if, you know, the, the English clubs don't start up um, for the rest of the season or they delay next season again. So um, ultimately, they're concerned about visas and travel more than anything else. Adam, what do you think has been your students' biggest concern? Um, mainly from our lower year groups, mainly from uh, what we would call our level four and level five students. Um, our final year, our level six students, um, have, have, to be honest, taken this in their stride. They've finished most of their practical work, their, their clinical placement work. They're just finalizing um, their dissertation projects and basically bringing all their placement information ready for Aviva, which now obviously just takes place online as opposed to face-to-face. -face. So not a lot has, has changed from their perspective um, in terms of the format of things. Uh, the time frame has kind of brought up some worries with people trying to juggle time. Um, that's been the main, main point from our final year students. But I think the key things from the lower year groups have been um, them understanding the change in assessments from something that was practical and viber-based now is purely viber-based and their questions around well is this still fair and um, those who are sort of have the, the thoughts of being better hands-on are they still going to be able to be marked on their hands-on skills so where appropriate um, this has been um, 
allowed to happen in our university is that we've had flexibility of learning outcomes and where it feeds into a level above then we can still embed a particular learning outcome somewhere else as long as it's not compromising overall program outcomes um, so it still gives the opportunity for those students to still show their competencies and, and still score with um, their um, prowess I suppose with how good they are hands-on um, I think it's probably put a few uh, um, deers in headlights really when students have realized they've got to purely then uh, focus on Viva based information justifications um, and I think some of them get a little bit uh, anxious about having to purely be assessed on that part without the, the hands-on practical bit. Um, so those have been the chief concerns but I think in the long run and it ties into the previous question as well about um, um, the whole change in formats really is actually benefiting their communication. So with this uh, telehealth or online version, they've really got to um, improve their vocabulary and basically look at how they're interacting with the person on the other side of a screen. It's much easier for them to interact face to face because of body language um, and how relaxed they can be within that same setting as a person. So I think this is first off quite a big challenge for um, the less experienced students, but two, I think it will help them grow quite a lot as well even if they are progressing towards that uh, if then nothing changes we're in a telehealth world but if as and when things revert back to normal if their communication skills are, are heightened and they're utilizing a lot more resources to engage with with patients then i think they they'll pick up a, a lot more from their subjective history taking and therefore their thought process again should be a little more robust very interesting uh, the communication skills having to change because you know you do like normally i can give somebody a high five or kind of just put my hand on their leg okay well tell me what you got going on here you know and so there's that just that little bit of connection but here just you really have to make sure you're clear make sure that you ask good questions ask the same question multiple ways because you know you can't just say okay does it hurt right here yeah yeah it hurts my leg well but does it hurt where we're talking about and so it's very interesting because I haven't done any sort of telehealth up to this point with with my students um, so I'm still gonna have to learn as well so Valerie what have your students over there in Canada expressed as their biggest concern I would say it's very similar to, to the others with just concerns about placements um, the ones who were scheduled to start this spring and summer they've been pretty good about I, I assume they understand the situation why they can't start they haven't really been emailing me or uh, or, or panicking too much. Um, I'd say for uh, specifically for our practicum three students, the ones that are sort of on the verge of graduating and then writing our national exam, they're very anxious about the situation. Um, even though, you know, we tell them all athletic therapy students in Canada are in the same position, it, it's still, it, it, that doesn't matter. It's them in this moment. Some of them are on their second degree already. They're from out of province. They've um, they've sacrificed a lot to do this. So naturally they're, they're just really unsure and anxious about what's going to happen. Some of them have jobs lined up um, in the field, which probably won't happen or they'll be delayed anyways, because everything is shut down. But uh, just, I think a lot of disappointment as well, because they were so close to finishing. Um, I just want to add too, though, that I think some of the concerns aren't necessarily expressed by students, but I can tell that there are these concerns 
Um, some of them just are not as tech savvy as we think they are. They're great at using social media. And when it comes to educational platforms and troubleshooting and uploading videos a certain way, uh, they have, they're, they're not always at the level that I assume they're at. So I think those are some concerns. Some of them also have um, internet issues, like students who live um, out of the big cities, it's, they just don't have the same um, connection capabilities, which makes it a challenge. And I've noticed this in my other courses more so than with our practicum courses. So I think, um, yeah, that's just another added layer to this, um, where we have to sort of tailor certain things to individual needs to make sure that we can really get them the information that we're delivering. You know, that's uh, interesting because there was a, a high school kid that I, he was typing in something in the computer and he went over and he hit caps lock and then hit the cap, then the letter and then uncaps lock. I'm like, dude, you don't know that you can just hit shift to, to capitalize <laughs> one letter, hold it down. And you know, like it really is. Yes. They know how to use TikTok or, um, whatever video messaging app they use, but they don't know how to use a computer well because they couldn't use their, their cell phone well. That is really an interesting uh, topic there. Um, so, Luzita, is there anything else you wanted to add about the biggest concerns from the students? Yeah, I think uh, to a lot of people's point, I think our students are just questioning whether or not they're going to be ready for the profession. Like, they feel that this opp opportunities have been taken away and does that, that, that's starting to affect their confidence. Um, and I'm really usually, I'm seeing this more in our first year students who are going to transition to their immersive over the summer um, about really questioning, like, am I going to be ready? Am I going to get enough time? Am I going to get enough um, hours in? Um, and the other thing that I think Valerie kind of hit on is also, I think we're getting at, you know, we want to have equity when it comes to our learning experiences. And sometimes students don't have um, the best home environments. Um, sometimes students don't have access to really good quality internet. And I really know that this is gonna have some financial constraints on our students long-term. Um, just given how many uh, people are having to apply for unemployment or being furloughed in the United States, it's gonna have some really long-term implications. So we're gonna to have to be really thoughtful. And I think these are things they might not be verbalizing right away like Valerie got to. And how we're gonna go about really trying to create an open line of communication so that they know that when they need to express those concerns that they can in an environment that they know will be confidential and that we can actually be responsive as a faculty and as a university and an institution to help get them to where they need to be. Because the last thing we would hate to have happen to anybody, but particularly is we have a student who's halfway through our program and then just can't go on because of the financial constraints. That just feels, oh, you know, you just feel for them. So I think that's my other big concern. Yeah, because right now it's not like they can just find a part-time job. Well, they might be able to with Amazon, but you know, finding <laughs> yeah. a part-time job to kind of make up for that that lack right. of income. So I know Effa said that they were creating zero credit hours um, for coming up, and Valerie said they were putting things on hold. But Luzita, won't we start with you again? Um, what are y'all doing to give the, ch the students a chance to make up those contact hours in the future, or what's the plan? So, so like I said, our students would do a six-week immersive over the summer. We can't give them a consistent and equitable experience this summer. So what we've done is pushed it all into the fall, where normally we'd only do seven-week immersive. The whole full fall will now be an immersive 13-week online experience, assuming we go in the fall. It's, it's a major assumption there, too. So we're just kind of keeping our fingers crossed. Um, until then, we're creating a virtual clinic over the summer. 
and trying to partner with other institutions to try to create um, partnerships where we can use each other to lean on to create cases and simulations that are more robust. Um, and, and so that virtual clinic, it's really just trying to convince our students that this is gonna be, can be just as meaningful as the face-to-face hands-on component. I think our students are still a little wary of it, um, but I do think that the frustration they're experiencing right now is perfectly natural. And um, us just kind of consistently just trying to provide some, again, sense of normalcy um, and, and some opportunity for them to continue thinking through cases is kind of how we're approaching the summer until we can hopefully get people back um, on campus or back at their immersives. The other thing we've had to do is change some of those immersives um, experiences. We'd, we'd started affiliation agreements with some really great places and we just know that that's not their priority right now. So we'll have to, I had to have individual meetings to revamp a clinical education plan. Um, and they're, they're doing pretty well with that. They just wanna get back, you know, they don't care what it is, they just wanna get back now. Um, so I think that's where we're at and what we're working through. All right, uh, Effa, what do you think, what does that look like for you moving forward in the future? Yeah, I suppose uh, we're in a similar boat, um, just trying to, to reassure the students that, you know, everything will work out. I suppose for the students that are hoping to travel abroad, they would be due to travel in around, you know, August, September. Um, and I suppose if this doesn't pan out, we just have contingency plans in place. So that there would be an option to do placements uh, in Ireland. And that might involve, um, you know, the, the virtual uh, clinical type placements. And until the sport kind of gets back up and running in, in Ireland, um, unfortunately, the, the sports side of things will be uh, grounded. Um, but their clinical reasoning skills will definitely be uh, catered for with the, the virtual or the telemedicine um, platform. So um, we do have plans in place for them. Um, but we're trying to stay, I suppose, as optimistic as possible for the students because it, it's everything to them um, and we can understand their passion for it. And uh, I suppose they just hear the great stories that the, the previous students have coming back from their placements and they, they want to experience that as well. So we're doing everything we can to help them out. Um, and then I suppose just trying to, to fulfill that as much as is reasonable with um, the other countries. So it's, it's difficult to say, you know, while we're at a certain time with the, the virus in Ireland, it's hard to say how things will work um, in the States, in the UK and in Australia. Um, so we're kind of, we're in a bit of limbo, but we're staying optimistic um, and hopefully they all get a good experience irrespective of where it is or when it is. No, and it's interesting, both of you had said something about or kind of everybody since about pushing back, but so now if, for example, the Houston Texans, they have a, that's a, an NFL team here in the Houston area. And so they have an affiliation with the University of Houston Masters Athletic Training Program. And if they send one kid or two kids every, you know, semester, but well, now are they going to have the backed up kids? So now they're going to have to do four kids or there, is there going to be just less opportunity because those programs can only accept so many people. And so it's going to be an interesting situation as well, just to see what that looks like going forward. All right, um, Adam, when we go, we'll start with you and work our way around. What is your national organization doing to accommodate the certification exams? So are they extending the deadlines? Are they decreasing the requirements? Things like that. Um, so our um, organization is the British Association of Sport Rehabilitators. And 
and they've been they've been fantastic in supporting our institutions. They've had really good, clear information around what the uh, how their expectations have been adjusted. I don't think that any standards have been lowered. It's just it's more of a case of um, asking the the program teams to be, I think, more mindful of all of the experience uh, or the experiences of the students right from uh, level one through level two in their final year uh, and take into account their progression um, so that they are still able to meet uh, the role delineation and the, the entry requirements for registration. Um, normally we, have, we do have a um, set amount of clinical hours that has been adjusted a little bit but nothing heavily to, uh, to compromise safety and to compromise competency. I think it's just put the onus a little more on the programme teams to look back at previous assessments in different modules um, to ensure that competencies are still met. So there's been um, guidance, some excellent guidance, but with a, enough flexibility for each programme across the UK because we all have a slightly different method of approach um, and it's allowed that um, allow that individuality across those programs to to look at the students look at their final year students and say well yeah are they still meeting the competencies to enter the profession um, so as long as that's been met then um, there are no particular issues or, or barriers to to becoming registered as a as a sport rehabilitation practitioner um, it's only when obviously those barriers are still not being met because of the current situation. So there's insufficient number of placement hours um, or certain competencies have not been able to be uh, checked um, and therefore programme outcomes have still not been met. But as far as I'm aware across the country that um, those situations have, uh, have not arisen just yet. So I think we're, we're still on good ground. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been excellent support from BASRAT. Um, right ever since things were starting to sort of take a turn for the worst. Very good. I keep keep hearing a theme of efficiency with with you, Adam. There, so you're talking about how they've you got to look back at the uh, previous classes and see if we're efficient in creating that education. So I keep hearing that theme there. It's a lot of reflective. Um, this is very personal for me as well. I mean, I I, I manage undergrad and postgrad courses and I'm constantly on this reflective process <laughs> let's look at what's been taught how it's been taught um, look at all of the learning outcomes that are being met and how we um, evidence those in terms of the overall program learning outcomes and how the students are progressively um, becoming the right standard and, and meeting what we need to be a sport rehabilitator so efficiency and, and reflection i think are probably the sort of the big two that are sort of crossing my mind at the moment and have done over the last couple of weeks with um my module team and uh, my academic staff so yeah two big ones there all right so i love what adam said about you can't really relax the hours because they, you need to be safe and you need to be pr producing good clinicians. So Valerie, what is the CAT or the Canadian, uh, well, that's Canadian athletic trainer. What is the, um, the board there in Canada and what are they doing? Yeah. So the, it's a Canadian athletic therapists association. Um, a few, a couple of years ago, there were some big changes that happened where they, they took out an hour requirement. Uh, they took out, a supervisory component from being able to qualify to write your national exam. So now 
you just need to graduate from an accredited institution. So in some ways, this is, I guess, helped a little bit um, because now it's just on the institution to make sure that, that we're um, not sacrificing competencies or safety uh, and we can be as flexible um, as we can uh, and, and get creative, I guess, with how we can get these students finished up uh, and ready to certify. Um, so for the time being, um, there's a national written exam that's every June and November in multiple locations. So for now, the June exam has been postponed. Uh, not sure when it will run again. If it gets too close to the November exam, I would assume that the June exam would just be cancelled and everyone would be deferred to November. Um, so at, at this point, that's the only direction we have because things are just so up in the air and it's really on the institutions um, to just uh, work on how we can finish things up. You know, in the move to the Masters of Athletic Training program, I was think that was one of the things as well as the clinical coordinators created a situation to where this is the maximum number or the recommended number of hours instead of like you have to have at least 1500 hours. And so they definitely increase the efficiency because whereas as I would just sit in the athletic training room doing my homework, doing my laundry yeah. or whatever it is for thousands of hours, now you really have to maximize, okay, well, I'm here, I'm busting my butt to learn and to really put my hands on everybody to ask questions and really dig in. And so I like that this is even another opportunity for us to look, do we need all of those hours? And if we do, how are we going to really maximize them? And then hopefully these students will see like, I don't want to be stuck at home having to do these hours. I'm going to really get into this and really learn. So yeah. so more of a, a quality versus quantity approach and just the, the whole competency-based approach um, just really fits this a lot better. Yes, ma'am. Lucy? Yeah, I agree too. I think uh, we've tried to focus on what we would call just patient encounters versus hours. Um, we send min-maxes min as well internally as a program versus our um, external accreditor or external agencies do that for us. But we really have three different agencies that have really stepped up. So the National Athletic Trainers Association has provided a lot of resources for practicing clinicians um, and educators. Um, the the uh, BOC, which is our certifying body, has um, had to you know cancel the March-April window for our BOC exam, which our students would normally take, and delayed it um, to the summer um, with the hopes that the extended window that they're providing during the summer will still be okay. Um, I don't know what the next steps would be if given, um, you know, depending on how this pandemic progresses, whether or not they'll be able, even able to make the summer window. Um, but there's plenty of tests throughout the year at local testing centers. Um, and then the Katie has basically made, uh, which is our accrediting body for education, has made statements that have been more of, you know, do what you need to do as a program to make changes just make policies that are very transparent and clear to the students, because again, it's a protection to the students. Um, but also you can't sacrifice, to Adam's point, the, the quality of the experiences. So how are you still meeting your learning outcomes that you've set as a program you're going to meet? So I think everybody's really stepped up. And what I've really been impressed with also is that our a lot of these institutions have really kind of opened up their um, processes to others, they've shared plans, they've shared experiences, they've been multiple conversations in, via multiple formats like the AATE, the Association for Athletic Training Education, has been very open about sharing experiences. So I think what we're seeing is a coming together, which has been really good for our profession 
And to Adam's point too, is about reevaluating why we'll, we do what we do. It's, I think we had a lot of sacred cows in, in what our education, how it was built. And, and I think a lot of it just didn't make sense and didn't, didn't really serve our program or our students. So now we're having to reassess those. All right, Effa, what does it look like in Ireland? What have they been doing for you? Uh, yeah, so in Ireland, we have the Athletic Rehabilitation uh, Therapy um, Association, and that's, I suppose, um, governance. And I think on the certification committee, so we've ultimately postponed the June exam. So we, every year there'd be three exams. It'd be January, June, and August. Um, and it's a theory element and a practical element. So the June exam has now been postponed until August provisionally. So um, the requirement for students to sit the exam would be to be with their final year graduation or to um, have their emergency care patients um, and be certified there, be in date with those. So uh, right now, it, it doesn't look like uh, the students will be affected in terms of um, becoming certified athletic therapists in Ireland in August, but unfortunately, they, they likely won't be able to be certified in June just with the the situation at the minute. So um, each of the institutions, um, so we have three institutes that would educate in athletic therapy and they've all been very understanding um, and they each control their, their learning outcomes and the program outcomes as well. And they've tried to meet, I suppose, the, the demands of the association. So, so far it's been very positive and you have very much understood the, the reason for the postponement as well. So. Um, it seems to be on good terms right now. Good. So it sounds like everybody is getting support. And also one of the cool things is that everybody is kind of collaborating and coming together. Uh, so Lucita said was that people are just letting down their guarded things and saying, look, this works. So, you know, that's one of the things I was working on an online uh, curriculum thing for my high school student athletic trainer aides. And I was already creating that, but now I've got a couple other people who are like, hey, can we help? How can we do this? And so we're going to kind of create this one thing that is easily shareable for, you know, across the, the country and, and people can change it as they need to, but it's like, Hey, let's, let's work together instead of just kind of everybody doing our own thing and, you know, trying to say we're better. It's, we're in this together. So, all right. Um, I feel like we've kind of already covered this, but the last question Jacob had was how is your inst institution managing to assess practical competencies in face to face opportunities are no longer available. So again, the last question is, how is your institution managing to assess practical competencies if face-to-face -face opportunities are no longer available? Um, Valerie, do you have anything else to add there? Uh, no, I think it's just, a, it depends on the course, either deferring them and, until a later date when we can do it properly with the right models and equipment or uh, using Zoom plus some form of video um, or our learning platform to be able to to properly assess the student. Adam, you got anything different there? Um, no, I just think it's learning outcome based. Um, if it's a competency, of course, it needs the right equipment and the right environment. And I don't think we should really compromise on those things. Um, there's, no, I don't, there's any point in hard, doing something halfway um, or half-hearted. It's it's worth deferring that and, and bringing that up later and, and just making it fit still to the progression of learning. Um, but where a learning outcome is, is more geared towards understanding justification, then um, even though it's linked to a practical situation, I think we still go ahead and 
um, and achieve those learning outcomes and, and keep the, the students' progression of learning moving. Um, it's, I think it's just a case of, of looking at it on an individual case or individual basis like that. Yeah, fine. Yeah, and that's similar to, to Adam and Valerie. We kind of deferred practical exams were appropriate. And then, you know, we considered doing, you know, some Zoom videos um, to check competencies, but it's probably to try and keep it fair across the board for all the students. You know, not everybody would have sound internet access. Um, and, you know, with social distancing and quarantine, um, not everybody might have access to somebody to practice on or somebody to record, um, etc. So we've tried to... Um, defer the most, I suppose, necessary um, practical exams and those then that we can still meet our learning outcomes and our requirements without doing the practical assessment, we've found alternate assessments there. Right. And then Lucita, you anything else to add? No, I think everybody's covered it really well. Fantastic. Okay, so I have everybody's email and I'll include those in the post with this. Again, it'll be sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash international clinical coordinator. Again, this would be sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash international clinical coordinator. And so if there's another way that you want somebody to get a hold of you, um, then you can share that here. But uh, Luzita, are you good with the email? That's great. Yes. Effa? Yeah, perfect. Adam? I'm by me. Yeah. All right. And Valerie? Yeah. yeah, that's great. All right. So again, I'll share those there in the post. Again, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash international clinical coordinator as we're learning to deal with the online education and transitioning during the COVID-19. And I love the reflection that Adam mentioned and in, in just increasing the efficiency. So again, thanks for the World Federation of Athletic Training and Therapy for connecting us and putting us together and just helping us grow as a profession. So for Jeremy, W-F-A-T-T, Dr. Lucita Felta at UVA, um, Effa Burke in Dublin City, Adam Naylor at Bolton University, and Valerie, uh, University of Winnipeg, and the Sports Medicine Broadcast, that is a wrap. Thanks, guys.